Well, I do want to invite you to turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. We're going to read through the first 11 verses of this chapter. And as you're doing that, uh, give your legs a stretch. Uh, we're going to uh, honor God's Word by standing this morning. Mark, chapter 11. And I'm going to begin with verse 1 here. Hear the word of the Lord. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway, and they untied it. Some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread the cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. May God add his blessing to that word. You can be seated. <clears throat> Hey, I hope you're praying this morning for our children's choir. They are over in Elyria, and a lot of the families and whatnot are over there this morning. And, you know, we, we just uh, continue to be excited about what God is doing on that campus over there. And uh, do covet your prayers uh, for Pastor David and his team. But this morning... As we step into Lent, uh, we, we had Ash Wednesday, and what a beautiful service that was. Pastor Jason noted that. But we're going to study during the Lenten season, the final week of Jesus, and we're going to use, I believe, the, Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark as our guide in these weeks. The Gospel of Mark, interestingly enough, has been called a passion story with an extended introduction. You see that more than half of the Gospel of Mark all relates to that final week of Jesus' activities before his crucifixion. And, and we can understand that those days for Jesus leading up to the cross were filled with intense pressure. Think about it. His, his life was threatened. His friends were fickle. His authority was challenged. And his identity was questioned. In fact, we know that at one point the strain is so heavy that, that he is in the garden and he is almost ready to break as he sweats drops of blood pleading for the Father to give him added strength. Yet Jesus was not dissuaded from accomplishing his mission. 1 Peter 2.21 says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So that's what we're going to do over these next few Sundays together. We're going to trace the steps of Jesus and consider how we can best follow him. This morning, I want us to take a look and see how Jesus intentionally steps into the spotlight. We've uh, read, of course, this morning, Mark's account of Jesus entering Jerusalem. We often call this the triumphal entry. 
Jesus intends to, to lead people into a right relationship with God, but he knows that you cannot lead people if you don't gain their attention. And so he steps into the spotlight so it could be known who indeed he was. Now, there are some people who are more naturally willing to step into the spotlight than others. I think, for instance, the Apostle Paul is one of those characters that probably didn't mind being the center of attention. He struck me as that kind of a guy. But then you have Moses, on the other hand. You remember God comes to him at the burning bush and, and says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to lead my people out of Egypt, out of their slavery. And Moses says, absolutely not. I don't want to go, Lord. Well, uh, the Lord says, I'm going to send you. I, I'll give you miracles to verify my presence. I'll send you Aaron, your brother, who will even speak for you, but I want you to go. And as a result, Moses goes, and the people of Israel are freed from their bondage in Egypt. Now, the spotlight, it immediately brings all kinds of pressure. Maybe you've had those moments when you were the center of attention because people take note of you. People are watching you. Did you know that we have a small Brethren in Christ Church in Merrill, Michigan, that often tunes into our messages from Sunday morning? They take the YouTube message that we post, and then the following week during their sermon, for it's a small congregation, they'd lost their pastor some time ago, they, they tune us in and, and are watching. And this week, and I've gotten several notes uh, across the last couple of months from, from these folks, wonderful folks, I'm sure. But uh, Wendy Cook uh, in their congregation this week uh, wrote me a note and said they were going to invite Mary and I to come up and visit. Now, this is Michigan, believe it or not. I thought, well, that's really nice. That's sweet. And, and then I, I continued to read the note, and it said, you and my husband can talk sports. <laughs> he was in the University of Michigan marching band. I don't know if that's a threat or what. Maybe I should stop with the Michigan jokes. I don't know. I, I'm not going to, but maybe I should. You, you know, when you're in the spotlight, people are watching. They take note. They listen. They hear. They analyze what you say. There's responsibility and accountability and expectation. Now, since we're aware of that, the temptation for a lot of us is to refuse any kind of position of responsibility. We'd rather just take it easy. We don't want to go there. As Christians, however, I want to challenge you. There are times in our life when God calls us to step out and actually take on the spotlight to make a difference in a world that desperately needs a gospel presence. But when it comes to the triumphal entry, I want you to notice a couple of things. First, I want you to see that Jesus is perceptive about his future, but he still accepted his assignment. And that took courage. You know, Jesus knew exactly when he went into Jerusalem what was going to happen to him. He knew he was going to be arrested. He knew he would face the cross. In fact, in, he told his disciples in Matthew 20, he said this, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the twelve aside, and he said to them, We are going to Jerusalem, 
and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified you know he could not have gotten more specific than that he knew exactly what going to Jerusalem meant and yet he went to Jerusalem Luke 9.51 says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. I love the old King James version of that verse. It says, He set his face toward the city. Now, many people are reluctant, again, to take any kind of leadership role because they know with that comes pressure. Maybe it's good, in fact, that we can't see the future because sometimes if we could, I think it would almost be too much for us, overwhelming, and we'd never accept a responsible assignment. I love my parents, and I hope I've shown that over the years, and I know they love me. But I can think of several times across the years when my dad, would take me aside and I'd share with him uh, some of the plans we had for our church and how we were launching out on this building campaign or we were launching with this campus or we were trying to raise this amount of money and he would often say to me over the years Jeff have you really thought this through no dad I just thought it was fun we'll try you know you really really thought this through of course what he was saying to me is do you realize how much work it's going to be? Do you realize the money it'll take, the sacrifice, the pressure, the criticism, the doubters? It's going to cost you. And, and for a dad, he didn't want his son to have to go through those things. I think there are a lot of people in fact, who are very qualified to take up leadership offices and positions, maybe in the political sense or in the community or, or especially in the church, but they don't pursue those positions because they just don't want the hassle. It's just easier not to deal with it. And far too often, the result is you end often get people who are not as qualified, not as experienced, maybe have a little more of an ego to fill those roles. And that's not always ideal. I want to just remind you, when God calls us to step out, there are blessings involved with that. There's a gratification that comes when you know you've made a positive contribution. There's a satisfaction of knowing I participated in the will of God. There's the energy that comes when you know that the Holy Spirit is helping you accomplish this work. There's the satisfaction in looking back and saying, you know, I did my best. Jesus courageously accepted his assignment. And the benefit, of course, was ours just like the people of Israel and Egypt, we were freed from our bondage and given eternal life. But I want you to notice something else about this triumphal entry. The second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus was praised by the multitudes, but he was able to maintain his equilibrium. And that takes humility 
There are some things here that I find Jesus does that are rather interesting. Number one, I would remind you that he performs his most spectacular miracle just before he gets to Jerusalem. Luke 19, 37 says, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. This was a, a deliberate, carefully prearranged parade that Jesus is orchestrating here because a few days before, he had raised Lazarus from the grave. Now, that gets people's attention. A person was in the grave there for days and suddenly is alive again. People are talking. And so in John's account, it says, John's account of the, uh, the, the triumphal entry, it says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. The poor guy. The raising of Lazarus put the focus on Jesus. The religious leaders resented him. But the common folk were flocking to him. They knew that nobody could possibly do what he was doing unless they were from God. So Jesus was the talk of the city. The buzz was real. He was the center of debate. Could he be the Messiah? But notice Jesus answers that question. He puts a spotlight on himself by arranging this parade during the Passover week. Now, that's not by accident. There's a huge celebration. People are flocking from all over to come into Jerusalem. Last Sunday night in Wilmore at Asbury University, I've been talking about this, and I apologize. I might sound like a broken record, but, you know, if you've been following any of that, this, this revival was happening. And so many, and, and uh, you know, I've lived there, so I know I was there for seven years, that so many people are flocking into Little Wilmore that the state police literally closed the town down on Sunday last week. I mean, they, they said, you cannot go into Wilmore unless you have an ID that proves that you live there. That's what uh, I heard Micah tell me. And, you know, I've seen estimates as many as 100,000 people came to be a part who were just hungry for God. Well, Jerusalem, in effect, was kind of like that at this time. Many people pilgrims were flocking come on all over from Jerusalem the streets are surging with people and so Jesus's timing here was no accident he wanted to get their attention and so how does he do it he turns the spotlight on himself by deliberately fulfilling the prophecy which surely engaged the crowd Zechariah 9.9 had predicted that when the Messiah comes, he's going to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Lord makes exactly those plans. 
and he carefully puts it together. He says, go into the village, find a colt. If they ask you, what are you doing? Just say the Lord has need of it. That's the password. And so Jesus rides into the city. And when they saw Jesus riding on it, they explode in excitement because they knew that the Lord now was openly declaring that he was the Messiah. So the people spread their cloaks in front of him. The whole crowd begins to joyfully praise God in loud voices and they shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, which means God save us. Now I think it's interesting in Mark, especially previous to this, when people would come to Jesus and say, you're the Messiah. Jesus would implore them to be quiet and he might just slip away. But at this moment, at this time, he wants the people to clearly recognize that he is the hope of Israel. And yet, of course, with so many praising him, Jesus still is able to maintain his equilibrium. Midstream on that donkey, he didn't step off and say, okay, give me the stallion. I'm riding that thing now. He, he didn't manipulate his popularity for purposes that were contrary to God's will. You know, at that moment, Jesus was in control. He could have declared an insurrection. He could have declared Israel is free from the bondage of Rome and people would have joined him and he could have led a revolution and people would have been very happy about that because that's what they wanted in a Messiah. But Charles Colson wrote, throughout history, there have been hundreds of kings and monarchs and presidents and they all send their subjects out to die for them. But there's been only one king who went out to die for his subjects that they might live. And that's Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, he, he could have done that at that moment. He could have declared, you serve me, let's go. But he chose to die for you, for them, for me. But let me say something else. You know, one of the most dangerous pressures of leadership, I think, is when people praise you. The Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. An acclaimed leader can become egotistical. Have you ever seen that? The applause of the crowd can create enormous ego problems. And you can believe that you are so much better than you really are. One of the things that has changed, I think, in our political landscape as we become more secular is we've lost the value of appreciating humility in leadership. Somehow we are drawn to the audacious, the boastful, the pompous swagger of egoism like I have never seen. And if you are praised, if your company is doing well, your sales are going up, your influence is expanding, just make sure you keep balance. 
God may have favored you and amen and blessings to you, but he does it for his glory and not your own. So many people have not withstood the pressure of popularity, but Jesus did. And he's proof that it can be done. But there's a third thing I want you to think about, and at least what I see here is I thought about the idea of Christ stepping out into the spotlight. <laughs> of course, he had his critics too. He was assailed by his critics, but he can still continued his mission, and that takes maturity. The religious leaders watched this triumphal entry, and it made them mad. In uh, Luke's account, verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. He's claiming, you're claiming they think they're, you're the Messiah. That is blasphemy. This is going to get us all in trouble with Rome. Of course, I think they were jealous too, but they were saying, stop them. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but even preachers can be subject to criticism. I don't like the music we sing. I don't think you're evangelical enough. You, 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 you're, you're not an evangelist like you need to be. You don't give enough altar calls. You aren't doing the altar calls right. A few years ago, I remember getting a letter with some kind of criticism. I don't remember what it was exactly about, but I was talking with it with a friend in Eastern region, and he said to me, well, Jeff, you got that woe off your back. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, that gets the woe off your back. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, what well, Jesus said, woe to you when all people speak well of you. You got that woe off your back. You're good. You don't have to worry about that one anymore. I guess that's not a bad thing. But Jesus, he refuses to be intimidated by those critics and those objectors. And he says, I tell you this, if they keep quiet, the stones are going to cry out. You see, there's something about people that need the opportunity to worship. You need the opportunity to worship. God delights in the worship of his people. Again, and maybe, maybe I should be silent, but Mary and I have been really tuned in and watched a lot of what was going on down at Asbury and tuned in in certain of the live streams that we've seen and it's just moved our hearts because I, I just have a passion for that generation so wrecked by anxiety and depression and sexual identity issues. It's, it's, it's just devastating and, and they're realizing what the culture was feeding us is leaving us empty. And so we've seen young people stepping up and saying, we're hungry for God. And so it's been interesting to see this spread and I hope it continues to do so. But it was worship and confession and testimony and scripture and preaching. 
It wasn't contrived. It wasn't celebrity. It hasn't been about lights and fancy fog machines and hype and emotion. What I saw was young people giving Jesus the praise and adoration that he alone deserves. And the more presence that they felt was there, the more they wanted him. But of course, there have been so many skeptics and critics too. And I've been following them and heard a lot of conversations on Twitter and whatnot. Maybe that's on me. Maybe I'll just leave it alone, but I'm interested. If this was God, this would have happened. Or this wouldn't have happened. Or, well, these young people, when this is over, work toward justice in our society. They aren't doing enough. Mark 14, I just found myself reflecting on when a woman walks in with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume and you remember she breaks it and she anoints Jesus in tender worship. And you remember what happened? This is what the Bible says. Some became indignant instead of joining in the worship, which is the only reasonable thing to do when Jesus is in the room, they critiqued and showed the hardness of their hearts, and they said, what a waste. This could have been used elsewhere. And they rebuked her harshly. And you remember what Jesus said? He said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me guard your heart but I found myself asking the question does Jesus get that kind of adoration here in our church I wonder sometimes if we're not content to let others worship for us the team up here in the spotlight they're doing fine they're here to lead worship however not perform worship not do worship for us they're in the spotlight to help us engage in worship and I get it listen you may not have a great voice you might not have a demonstrative personality I understand but I do wonder sometimes are, are the rocks going to start crying out in this place because we aren't doing our job? I want to encourage you. When we sing, sing. Tell God from your heart what he means to you. It's a real reflection of maybe what's going on inside. I, I'm not talking about drawing attention to yourself, but when we sing, I've noticed that when we sing together and we sing uh, uh, boldly, others join in and they begin to sing too. I, I worship because I've fallen in love with the one who created me and calls me his own and has promised through his mercy and grace eternal life. It occurred to me at the Grammys this year, now I didn't watch the Grammys, so, but I've heard about it, they had a satanic mass that lasted five minutes during their ceremony. A satanic mass. 
five minutes. And then I thought, you know, isn't it interesting when the people of God encountered his presence in an unknown place in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky, people have been there for hours and hours and days and hours. You know, my son Joshua, who graduated a couple of years ago from Asbury, went down. Uh, he had planned it. It was already pre-planned before anything had happened, but he had decided to go down to visit his brother and see some friends. But he went down, and he said, Dad, I was in the chapel a couple of times, but on Friday night, I was there from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m., 12 hours. Who does that? What young person does that? And why? Unless he's there. I want you to think about this. Heaven will be heaven because he's there. And we will be able to worship him. And in worship, we touch life and experience grace and know that we belong to him. And our salvation will be complete. But what I see in this passage in Mark and what I hope would happen every time we gather, I believe Jesus steps into the spotlight at that moment in Jerusalem so that anyone who would see could see who he was, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And they worshiped. They saw him. And they worshiped. And yet, even in that moment, some plotted to get rid of him. But let me tell you, my friends, there is another moment coming at the end of time. <laughs> Paul the Apostle says he will once again take the center stage. And at that moment, every eye will behold him and every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's coming. It's a certainty. Are you ready? Have you practiced? It's interesting to me. As I was thinking about this, Luke records in verse 41, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem and he sees the city, Luke tells us he weeps over it. And he said, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You know, we call this the triumphal entry, but Luke records it as the tearful one. Why? Jesus didn't weep because he was going to die. He wept because so many would reject him. He knew their sinful condition. He knew the hardness of their hearts. This morning, may Jesus take center stage here. May he have the spotlight always in this place. And I want you to know, my friend, there is no middle ground here. I'm asking you, will you reject him? Mock him? Mock those who follow him? Or will you worship him? Will you follow him? Will you celebrate his presence? He came to die so that you could live forever. And my prayer is that you would receive him as your Lord and Savior. Hosanna! Hosanna!
our God saves. May he save us today by showing us himself. May we glory in his presence. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that what we've seen at Asbury is supposed to be normal. There's nothing extraordinary about what is happening there or shouldn't be. It ought to be the experience of people who are just hungry and engaged and want to see you. Lord, I pray that your presence, your presence will fill this place. And each of us would determine where we are with you. Are we for you or against you? You are for us. Lord, as you take that center spotlight, may we make a wise decision to lift you up, to praise your name, and welcome you. Prepare our hearts not only for this moment, but for that moment to come when you will be revealed to all humanity that you are the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, where every eye will behold your glory. May we say yes to your gift of grace today. Amen.